For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That was our president, Mr. Joe Biden, talking about Russia's president, Mr. Vladimir Putin. What one sees is a deep history in which this sort of revolution, this movement by all sorts of classes and peoples to say, we can't live this way anymore, which is a phrase Russians use all, used to use all the time. I would like to think they're going to use it again. Uh, we can't live like this. This is impossible. Literally, that's it's, a phrase they used. That it's they a phrase. In, yeah. In Russian. To live like this any longer is impossible, literally. One might say the same thing people were saying. We can't live like this anymore. We can't do this. We can't shoot our own people. And so they just said, forget it. And they handed their guns over to the crowds in the street. And they said, we're not going to do this anymore. And soon everything began to fall apart. As Russia wages war in Ukraine, did you know that Russia's past wars have led to rebellions, revolutions, and regime change? While it is highly unlikely that Russians will revolt and remove President Putin in the near future, we shouldn't be too confident in making predictions when it comes to Russia. After all, in the fall of 1916, literally months before Russia's last Tsar was overthrown, Vladimir Lenin said this, We would not see revolution within our lifetime. It's impossible. Hmm. I wonder if Mr. Lenin would make the same statement now. Hey there, news peelers. Today's April 29, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. President Biden's outburst in Poland last month against President Putin, the one I shared with you at the beginning of this episode, which I'm sure you've heard of in the news anyway, was explained away by his administration as the president's expression of personal outrage rather than a change in U.S. policy. Whether policy or personal, President Biden's outrage is shared by many. For example, earlier in March, South Carolina's Republican Senator, Mr. Lindsey Graham, openly called for the assassination of President Putin, rhetorically asking, is there a Brutus in Russia? And it's not just Americans. Also last month, a former member of Russia's state Duma stated this in Ms. Amanpour's program on PBS. Quote, I'm not anti-Russian, I'm pro-Russian, but I'm anti-Putin, and we will kill the bastard. So, with all this rage about getting rid of Mr. Putin, Russia's leader, we wondered, has this happened before? And if so, was it through a revolution, a coup, or an assassination? Here's another question. If Mr. Putin is considered a bad leader, then who do Russians consider a good leader in their history? Professor Steinberg joins us from Italy to answer these questions, but don't expect easy answers, because history is complicated. But when it comes to Russia, there's a whole additional layer of complexity on top of that. Professor Steinberg is emeritus at the Department of History of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where his research focuses on revolutions, emotions, violence, space, moralities, and utopia. He is the author of several books about Russia including Voices of Revolution, 1917, and the Russian Revolution, 1905-1921, to 
and also Russian Utopia. To learn more about Professor Steinberg, his other books and publications, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Steinberg and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Steinberg, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Professor Steinberg, in my lifetime, I've witnessed the Soviet Union crumble around Mr. Gorbachev, and then Russia suffered through financial turmoil and instability during the Yeltsin years. And now we have Mr. Putin's dictatorship and his disastrous invasion of Ukraine. All of which make me wonder, how should I even um, articulate this? Yeah, who do Russians consider to be the great leaders of their history? You know, we can point to Abe Lincoln, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, and others. Yeah, what about Russians? Yeah, it's a hard question um, because- It's a hard question. (laughs) Precisely because of the very word Russians you use. It's like, who? Who Russians? Which Russians? Uh, and one of the interesting. Things about Russia, which Russians? Okay. One of the things that I'll, one of the things you'll probably hear me say in one way or another, in several ways, is that this is not a homogenous place. Russians have been disagreeing with each other uh, about fundamentals since the place was created. Um, well, we do that here in the U.S. as well. Yes, and therefore a definition of what Russians think. It depends on who, who we're talking about. So, for example, to start to go backwards in history, uh, I like to somehow, we, we live history backwards. We're, we're in the presence, always looking backward, but we pretend it moves forward in the way we talk about it. If you talk to Russians now uh, about Putin, mm-hmm. I, I have people I know, uh, but also, you know, using sort of scientific techniques of figuring out public opinion, there's, it's clear, sadly, I have to admit, that uh, there are a very large number of people who think Putin is one of the greatest leaders of the last two centuries, maybe longer. Uh, really? Who, in Russia? Absolutely. Who admire him in all sorts of ways uh, for bringing stability to the country, for bringing respect around the world, and of course, as great powers always think, uh, being considered uh, powerful and scary is a form of respect that uh, many big countries like, and I'll come back to earlier leaders who were who were admired just for that. Uh, and uh, even in the war now, he's seen as continuing something that was fi- they thought was finished in World War II, and that was the defeat of Nazism. People really, as bizarre as it seems to, to you and me and many people, that this is not where he claims it's a war against Nazis, it's amazing how many people, maybe he himself, it's hard to tell, actually believe this is the continuation of World War II. This is finally getting the Nazis out of Europe. Um, when, when you say Russians, uh, yeah. now contemporary Russians, mm-hmm. uh, believe that he's one of the greatest leaders, many, um, uh, many uh, in, in, in uh, Russia's last two centuries. And we'll talk about the history in a moment. Yeah, what yeah, I want to yeah. know, go, go backwards, as, as you aptly pointed out, um, is it like regional, like, you know, in the States, Kentucky doesn't think the same way as Massachusetts or Washington State or, you know, Montana. Yeah. Is it a regional thing? Is it an age thing? Is it in Moscow and St. Petersburg and Siberia and whatever is different? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. There are no red state, blue states in, in <laughs> Russia, but yeah. it is. And there are a lot of ways to cut cut it in terms of social difference, but um, and big cities versus the provinces. Uh, but generation is the biggest reason, as you say, age. Uh, the so biggest older. distinction, older people, middle-aged people, um, are much more likely to admire him and young people to despise him. And, and that's the other part of it. If you say, what do Russians think of Putin? There are 
hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Russians who consider him to be a tyrant, to be evil, to be responsible for wartime atrocities, and who are today finding all sorts of ways to resist. It's not easy. Uh, it's a dictatorship now. Um, but there are Russians who see him as exactly opposite of Russia's, what Russia stands for. And if we look historically, one could tell the same story, that at any moment there are those who represent power and might and empire and war and violence, but also stability and economic development and all those things strong states could do. And those who believe that what Russia stands for is something very different. It could be, for some, it's religion and culture and morality. Mm -hmm. For some, it is uh, deep democratic humanistic values. Different Russians will say different things about what Russia should stand for in the world. Uh, but this is a major divide. And it's still being argued on the streets and within families uh, today. Wow. So let's, let's look at this historically. Yeah. Uh, like, who do we compare Mr. Putin to in Russia's well, history. Start with who he admires, for example. Who does he admire? Uh, <laughs> not Lenin. Example, <laughs> no, not Lenin, uh -huh. uh, ironically, uh, though there's ways in which he, it's that's an interesting game he plays. No, for example, Peter the Great. So Peter the Great, who, who was ironically the one who most westernized Russia, who most brought Russia into Europe. And one of the things Putin now argues is that Europe has decayed. Europe is degenerate. Europe is bringing values that aren't the values of high civilization. One might say Europe lost its way, but, and that's how he justifies loving Peter the Great. Peter the Great brought backward, primitive Russia, that's how Peter saw it, that's how many see it, into European civilization and embraced the basic values of Europe. Now for Peter, those values included a strong state, a big military, an expanding empire, uh, but also the technical skills and knowledge of modern scientific civilization. And Peter's most, Peter is often described as a revolutionary because he transformed Russia into a modern country by force. It was, he didn't ask people what they thought. He didn't take a vote. He didn't do it voluntarily. He punished people who didn't go along, uh, but he transformed Russia. And that's the sort of leader transformative, radical, uh, visionary uh, that, that Putin admires. And many Russians have told the story of Peter the Great just that way. Uh, isn't Peter the Great the czar that famously or perhaps infamously for some forced men to uh, shave their beards and yeah. they had these uh, long uh, sort of overcoats, I forget what they're called, caftans, I, I don't know what they're called, yeah. Uh, yeah, get yeah, rid yeah. of them. Yeah. They we, we don't like, live in that time anymore. <laughs> right. No, he created a world where uh, men should look, you know, civilized, which meant they wore long powdered wigs and they cut their beards. Mustaches were sort of considered cool. That was good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no beards, especially not big beards like a Russian yeah. would have. And right, that dress of a traditional Russian, their national dress, yeah. uh, was seen as a... Asiatic, as backward, as not representing Europe. No, he transformed the country. And that's the sort of thing that, that many Russians admire. In fact, there is this argument, right, uh, which Putin also embraces, which is the strong leader who will, kicking and screaming, the, drag their country, kicking and screaming into a better place. And one might say Stalin did the same thing, and Putin likes Stalin better than Lenin. Uh, for interesting reasons. He does. Uh, this is the leader, this is the idea of the great leader who will, even in the face of a lack of popular understanding of what they're going to do, will change the country. And he admires that, as do many Russians. Is there a historical basis for this, for this way of thinking? Is there, you know, I mean, if we go back to Western uh philosophy uh you know we have the philosopher kings of plato a wise king mm -hmm. or what have you but mm -hmm. as you're talking I, I sort of the underlying theme is power it's not so yeah. much wisdom i hear power in the wars yeah. that you're using or maybe yeah. am i making too much of that no it's right um i mean i think they saw themselves as in the model of european absolutists i mean it isn't like 
Europe in the late 17th, early 18th century, when Peter the Great uh, ruled, he died in 1725. Uh, it isn't like this was the era of democratic countries. No, it wasn't. Uh, with civil rights and voting and parliaments. No, not at all. Yeah, a yeah. And so he saw himself as very much justified in a European tradition. Um, but it's interesting to note here that what when he's called Peter the Great, the reason he's called Peter the Great is not because he was the great reformer and brought all this westernization. You get to be great when you've built an empire. That was literally, that is the official way in which, and it's true of European monarchs as well, he became great because he expanded the Russian Empire. And that is where Catherine the Great uh, is also really interesting. Another one of these powerful leaders who is admired by many, especially those who admire the, the state. Of course, there's another side of the story I want to tell. But Catherine the Great pushed Russia even more into European civilization, much more. Uh, and she, she her timing... Yeah. Go ahead, please. She's named great because she expanded the empire, it, including westward toward Ukraine, by the way. Including, yeah. Um, a couple of things about uh, Catherine the Great's period that, uh, well, first of all, she was German. She was not Russian. She sort of crucified herself, if, if you yeah. will. She came during a time in which enlightenment was flourishing in mm -hmm. Europe. And then you had the French Revolution, the bloodbaths there, and then the American Revolution. Yeah. Did she bring any of that enlightenment to Russia? Is that is that one of her any of her legacy of greatness or no? That's sort it's of not. Yes, it is. It's not why she gets the title. She gets the <laughs> title for empire. Yeah. But it's yeah. absolutely part of her legacy and how people look to her. But this is where one sees not only the contradictions of great power, uh, especially in a so-called enlightened Europeanizing age, but also the tensions between different way different Russians could say what makes Catherine great, right? So absolutely, when she came to Russia and she learned Russian and she converted to Orthodoxy and she looked at the country, she followed the logic of Peter the Great, which is this is still a backward country. It's still got ways that don't fit the height of European civilization. And as you point out, that civilization had continued to advance. It's the age of enlightenment. And she was determined to bring that to Russia. She wrote an amazing text, uh, which she called The Instruction. It tells you something about her vision of herself. It's like, yeah. here's your instruction, folks. That's more to also closer to a philosopher king, but in her case, queen, right? Yeah, yeah. And she admired uh, people who had theorized about philosopher kings. Yeah. Uh, so she wrote this instruction to uh, deputies who were brought from all over Russia to discuss how to reform the country. And she said, here's your, here's your instruction. And at the very beginning of the instruction, she says, Russia is a European country. And she goes on to explain, what is Europe? It's about these civilized values. She wanted to really create a truly, she even talked about the possibility that democracy maybe someday would be wow. part of European civilization. It will take time. But the more she, tr she talked about this, she brought education, she established schools, she promoted science, she promoted publishing, she did a lot of those things. But the more she, under she looked around her, the more she began to realize this is a country of ignorant peasants, illiterate peasants. It's going to take a long time to realize these things. And that led people to feel disappointed because she didn't do all the things she promised. So there you can say there's another set of Russians, uh, both at the top in the elite and at the very bottom in the peasantry, who looked at Catherine and said, you're not giving us what you said. This isn't what a great leader should do. So on the one hand, you get, you know. Is this historian saying this or her contemporaries? No, this is her contemporary. So let's yeah. just take two people. One of them is a guy named Nikolai Novikov. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a publisher. He was a writer. He did all the things Catherine wanted him to do. Actually, he worked for the, partly for the government. Uh, he was at that assembly where he received the instruction. He was a secretary there, uh, uh -huh. keeping track of what people said. He got involved in publishing and writing because his goal was to be an enlightener. Uh, he promoted all of the ideas that she promoted. Sounds and yet at a so certain far? At a, yeah, it was great, except at a certain point, he kept saying, well, where is the reality of this? Where are we going to achieve the sort of 
society where human beings are treated like human beings, not like slaves. And remember, the majority of the Russian population were serfs. Yeah. And the difference between serfdom and a slavery is very small. Serfs were even below peasants, right? Uh, well, serf, peasants were serfs in those days. Oh, there, there were very those, few okay. peasants who were not serfs. Okay. And, or, and they might have been serfs of the church or serfs of the state or serfs of landlords. Most were landlords. Uh, none of this was changing. And so Novikov began to criticize and make fun of her and get, became more and more serious about the need to, for educated people like himself to unite to create a new society. He didn't make a revolution, but he got close to thinking about a conspiracy to really bring about change. And then comes the French Revolution. And Catherine the Great says, whoa, when people, <laughs> edu highly educated people who have read Voltaire and Diderot, just like I did, begin to meet on their own and talk about the need for the regeneration of the country and really realizing these goals like now, we know what happens. You know, rulers lose their heads in the guillotine. And so she had him arrested and sent to prison. She couldn't take, even though he was arguing what she did, he was, one might say, one of the first dissidents who said to the system, look, live up to your own high ideals, your best ideals. That's at the top. If you go to the bottom, we have a peasant like a, there was a guy named Emilian Pugachev who ended up attracting- The Pugachev Rebellion. Is yes, that what, the Pugachev oh, Rebellion. Wow, okay. This, he was a, a Cossack, a poor a, a sort of peasant type, uh, became a Cossack, served in the Russo-Turkish War, was a deserter. I mean, a real low, low life, one might say. He comes back and he says, this is, what a, what a mess this country's in. We need to end serfdom. We need freedom. Uh, he also had some religious ideas that didn't fit with the, the state. Uh, and of course, he pretended he was a former czar who had been killed. Uh, because it, it make, it's a good story. <laughs> it is a good story. Well. Everybody <laughs> knew who he was, but it, it made good it. to say, I'm the czar, come back, and I'm going to free the serfs. In fact, I was killed by Catherine. It was her husband, actually, mm -hmm. that was killed, and that's who he pretended to be. I was killed because I was going to bring freedom to Russia. I was going to end serfdom, and that's why they killed me, and so let's do it. And he attracted hundreds of thousands of people who were marching on the capital. Uh, oh, wow. And again, Catherine had to send an army. They had a very different vision of where Russia was. And, and that's just a little idea of how already by the 18th century, you get very different definitions of what Russia should stand for in the world. And that you can jump to the present and see the same thing. So we have Peter the Great and Catherine the Great as some of their early, um, well, relatively early uh, leaders of Russia that people... Mm -hmm including Mr. Putin associated as great. And this is a good segue when you talk about Pogachev uh, to talk about get into our next segment. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about okay. that position of Russian and Soviet leaders. We'll be right back. Who are Ukrainians? Seriously, how much do we know about their language and religions, including American evangelism that hasn't spread there since their independence from USSR? Or what do we know about Kiev and Rus, this historic Russian-Ukrainian state? Professor Warner explains all of this in Season 2, Episode 5. And what's the history of wars between Ukraine and Russia? In Season 2, Episode 8, Professor Stone of the U.S. Naval War College takes us back to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and then Lenin and Stalin to tell us the history of Russia's subjugation of Ukraine. And who's Mr. Putin? What is his personality like? Here's something that I bet you didn't know. That at one point, the KGB assessed a character flaw in Mr. Putin. Can you guess what it is? He was prone to take unwarranted risks. Hmm. Professor Stoner of Stanford University tells us about Mr. Putin in Season 2, Episode 9. For your convenience, we have organized these episodes into a post-Soviet States podcast series, the link for which is in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Steinberg. Professor Steinberg, there are some that openly talk about uh, deposition of Mr. 
Putin, for example, last week, uh, there was uh, President Biden's gaffe about, you know, he's got to go. Uh, and then in a recent episode on PBS, a gentleman with the, uh, his name is Ilya Ponomarev, if I'm uh, pronounced that correctly, he's a Russian dissident who's, I'm sorry? Close enough. Ponomarev. Close enough. There you go. He's a Russian dissident, dissident who's a former member of the Russian uh, Duma. And he said, and I quote here, I'm not anti-Russian. I'm pro-Russian, but I'm anti-Putin, and we will kill the bastard. So uh, I don't want to dwell on current events that much. What I'm wondering is this. Is there a history of deposing Russia's or Soviet elites through sort of internal work like coups, assassinations, or other such methods? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting because there are rare, rarely is a revolution or an overthrow of a government or deposing a leader, where rarely does this happen in any case without the elites agreeing to it. Uh, and that's always a question. So even thinking about the present, where the elites stand is certainly one. If you go back in history and think about the previous cases, and again, I, I like to work backwards, but we'll start earlier this time. Um, you know, probably the most important one, the one that most shocked Russians. If you leave aside all the medieval battles where princes were killing each other, which yeah, there was yeah. a lot of, princes were always killing each other and <laughs> taking the top throne because that's, that's what, why that's why, med, that's why movies about medieval eras so are so popular. There's so yeah, much exactly, blood and gore. Exactly. You know, you get on your horse and you ride to go to town and you bring your sword and now you're in charge. There you know, go. but if in the modern era, so let's just stay with the modern era, of course, one might say Catherine the Great was the first because she overthrew her husband. Oh, that's uh, right. yeah. And so yeah. she brought together her guards troops. And of course she was pretty close to the top of power. She was married to the czar, to the emperor. She brought together her troops and uh, had him arrested and killed. Uh, and that made her ruler. So one might say the modern era, if you start in the 18th century, begins with precisely the violent coup against a, a legitimate ruler by illegal means in order to take power. Catherine did that. Nobody ever did that to and Catherine. And they call her Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great. She, <laughs> yeah. she, she did a great thing, right? Uh, and she was, you know, for somebody, to go back a little bit with her, to somebody who was so attached to Enlightenment values, uh, the use of violence was something she was quite comfortable with. Uh, and that is part of great power politics is embracing the ethical legitimacy of using violence, which she did quite often, including in, in war. Okay. Later, go ahead. You had a question? No, no. I said, okay, go yeah. ahead, please. Yeah. So later, the most important one after that was closer to what we imagine when a group me uh, members of the elite uh, try to overthrow the government. And that was in the beginning of the 19th century in 1825, uh, when Alexander I was uh, the czar. And interestingly, Alexander I is often forgotten in the West, but he was as liberal, if not more, than Catherine the Great. Liberal in the sense of believing in constitutions, in the rule of law. Like a constitutional uh, monarchy? Absolutely. Oh, and wow. He seriously, he formed a secret committee within his government, not very secret, all the elites knew about it, uh, to talk about, let's write a constitution, uh, let's limit the power of autocracy by the rule of law, and let's think about how do we give popular sovereignty as time goes on, democracy, uh, in other words. And this was a very serious consideration, uh, so much so that conservative intellectuals at the time wrote to him and said, you can't do this. A and my favorite is this guy, Nikolai Keramzin. He was a historian and, it had, and, a, and a high uh, professor at the university. And he wrote to Alexander and he said, look, you forget. You are an absolute ruler. You're an absolutist. You can do anything you want, but there's one thing an absolutist ruler can't do, and that is give away his own power. <laughs> you have absolute power to do anything except endotocracy. And of course, oh. Alexander I's reaction was, you guys, you're so old, you don't know understand things. But what happened was, is that as time went on, Alexander I got nervous and backed away partly because he was opposed by many, but backed away from bringing about uh, a constitution for Russia. I mean, he taught, he formed a committee to study it, it never happened. He did believe in the rule of law, but again, 
he used the state when necessary. Partly the Napoleonic Wars complicated all that for him. War always leads to people backing away from democracy. Yeah, yeah. So what happens? As people grow, as people, intellectual, highly educated elites, a mixture of the most educated Russians, some of whom had studied in Europe, sent there by the government to get a good education, some of whom were officers in the military, uh, who had actually fought in the Napoleonic War. And my favorite is some of them end up uh, fighting as soldiers, end up in Paris. They sit around in the cafes of Paris, uh, enjoying themselves. Um, and in fact, the word bistro, which we think of as a, a restaurant in, Paris, in France, comes from the Russian word bistra, hurry up, because that's, oh. they sat there <laughs> shouting, come on, serve me faster, bistra, bistra. And so they called these places bistros. Bistro. But on a more serious note, they went to the university. They heard lectures. They they imbibed the spirit of the French Revolution, at, but now well on, uh, in which they were hearing all these modern democratic ideas because they, of course, spoke perfect French, no problem. And so they go back to Russia. Some of them are, are educated uh, intellectuals. Some are working in the government. Some are coming from the military. And they're all looking at Alexander I and say, we agree with you. We, we shared your dream, and yet it's not happening. And so they do what nobody had ever done before, and that is they form secret societies that first they sit around and they read literature and poetry and talk about ideas and read illegal, illegal books, a sort of intellectual underground. But then they say, but this isn't enough. If we're going to be respectful, if we're going to respect ourselves in the future, we have to do something active. And so they organize a uh, conspiracy to overthrow uh, not uh, Alexander I. They wait until he dies. And as soon as he dies and his successor is about to come to the throne, they decide this is the moment. We're going to take power. We're going to call on our troops to refuse to swear loyalty to the new czar. And actually, instead, we'll swear loyalty to his nice brother, who was much more liberal, who didn't actually want to rule anyway, and was forbidden by law for ruling. It's all very complicated. Basically, they wanted to take power and create a constitutional monarchy. Some wanted to create a republic with no czar. And they gather in the capital square. There's troops, there's horses, there's a whole thing. Uh, they lose. They were outnumbered. Uh, but it, is, it was an honest attempt, without doubt. And, the, and many of them were hanged. Uh, for the for that crime of trying to overthrow the government, it was a it that moment known as the Decemberist Rebellion is the first modern attempt to depose a leader by uh, a, a conspiracy of educated elites. What time period is this? Eighteen twenty-five. Eighteen twenty-five. It happened in December, hence they were known as the Decemberists through history. So we're almost a century away from Lenin. Who also was in Paris and came? Is that true? Is that am I correct on that? Par Lenin lived in Paris. He lived in Geneva. He lived in Berlin. <laughs> he, he had to keep moving because they were always after him. Um, but yeah, exactly right. And the thing is, the Decembers, though it's a century later, the Decembers were heroes of the Soviet Union. Uh, soon as they built statues to the Decembers rebellion, they saw the Russian Revolution. They saw what they were doing, uh, which many have called a coup. Actually, many many historians even have said that Lenin it was a coup d'état, it wasn't a revolution. We can talk about it if you want. Uh, but the one thing is that they look back to the December as the beginning of the Russian Revolution. One might say that's the beginning of their history, with a whole lot of other people who also develop both the ideas of what uh, the ideas and also plans for how to transform Russia, this other Russia we could call them. Being, I'm sorry. I'm just saying there's this other Russia that stands outside state power. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Opposed yeah. to it that that they were part of. Putting aside uh, Lenin's uh, coup d'état slash revolution that we'll talk about momentarily in a different sure. context. Um, are were there any more attempts at coups um, in the remainder of the 19th century or mm -hmm. sort of? Oh, yeah. More excitingly for me, because I, I was alive when the Soviet Union was, was still an extant yeah, um, yeah. nation. Was there any during the Soviet era? Yeah. So so there's th there are, and there's a number of conspiracies that don't get very far. One very important one was um, Alexander II, who was a czar in the middle of the 19th century, who actually f ended serfdom. He was 
they called him the great emancipator. He was their Abraham Lincoln. And at the oh, same wow, time, good. At the same time. Also, at the same time. It was in 1861. They anti served okay. him in Russia. So actually a couple of years before slavery was ended in the United States, but exactly. there was yeah, war yeah. going on. So Alexander II, while the great emancipator, was also a militarist and seen as not really believing in the democratic ideals that uh, young, especially young Russians wanted. And at this point, they were already talking about, we need socialism. We need a republic. We need socialism. We need civil rights. We need all the things that Western European countries not only have, but some actually want, the ideal of an ideal socialist society. And so a conspiracy was formed uh, to uh, assassinate Alexander II uh, under the assumption that once you assassinate him, then somehow somebody will come to power. Some thought the elites will come to power. Others said the peasants will take power. It was a little vague, but they knew they wanted to assassinate the Tsar. And so they did. They organized a, a conspiracy and they found one. They tried many, many times, numerous attempts to shoot him, to throw bombs at him, to stab him. They kept trying. But finally, they succeeded. One day, he's going down the street in his carriage and a revolutionary runs up and rolls a bomb underneath the carriage. It blows up. And that's the end of Alexander II. Uh, who died. I mean, he, there was no change in power. His, you know, the next in line to inherit the throne now, uh, ca simply came to power uh, and became more conservative than ever because of the reaction to this. Act. Yeah. Yeah. This was a terrorist uh, conspiracy to overthrow the government. And the one thing I should add is Lenin's brother was involved. Ah, so that probably set this. Was he assassinated? Was he executed because of this? He was executed because of this. Which so probably Lenin, set the stage. When yeah. Lenin was a young man, his brother was arrested and executed for an indirect participation in the conspiracy. And uh, Lenin was blown away. He was a kid. He didn't know what was going on. But he began to think, gee, I need to read my brother's books. What was he reading? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, what? as, as you were telling me the stories about these different coup attempts and in the previous segment about uh, yeah. uh, Catherine the Great, one of the thing, one of the themes that I read between the lines was this quest for a better society and ideal social setting, um, which intrigues me about one of your books is a recent book, a 2021 book. The title is Russian Utopia, a Century of revolutionary possibilities. Uh, what is this book about? So it's a short book, interestingly enough. I decided not to keep writing long books that no one read. <laughs> so it's a short book meant to be read. Um, so the basic idea is you can see it in the title. And it is that while we usually think of utopia as this fanciful, impossible dream, right? I suggest, and there's a, some philosophers who I borrow this and develop this idea from, I didn't invent it. Utopia is a way of saying, just because we think it's impossible, that's because we lack imagination. It's possible. We need to rethink the possible. And we, there's all sorts of moments in history where people faced with over an enormous state, with serfdom, with autocracy, with brutal violence, with uh, crushing minorities, uh, around because of this huge empire uh, with, mis with, with terrible misogyny and subordination of women, with anti-Semitism and pogroms. The list could go on. Uh, I could go on forever listing the horrors of, of the, Ru okay. the Russian system the picture. as it is. We get the picture. In each case, there are people who say it doesn't have to be this way. And so what the book does is it deals with uh, people who said around, I did, ended up, in order not to write a book that was a thousand pages long, easily could have been, uh, I ended up focusing on certain stories. People who thought that the human experience, just being an individual, could be different. You could be, live a richer, fuller life. Are these um, influential people, people or ordinary people? They range between uh, writers who everybody read, um, people like Chernyshevsky, uh, thinkers like Belinsky. Uh, if you ever saw Tom Stoppard or heard of Tom Stoppard's play, Coast of Utopia, it's all those people on stage mm -hmm. uh, in his play, like Belinsky and Herzen and Bakunin and others, who really were full of ideas and action about possibility. 
uh, but also very ordinary people, people like Pugachev, who we talked about earlier, uh, but also ordinary uh, workers uh, in World War I uh, who sat there in the trenches dreaming of another possibility. And of course, the sorts of people who participated in revolutions. Uh, another part of the book deals with ideas of the city. Every, there's lots of ideas about utopian cities. I actually look at the way Russians thought about urban life. How could urban life be different? How, one might say, how could modernity be different? And I have a whole section on uh, empire, uh, including a big section on Ukraine uh, and a big section on Jews uh, about how could an empire stop oppressing people, stop treating the way Putin says, Ukrainians have no right to exist. There were Ukrainians already arguing a century ago about Imagine a, a society in which every ethnic group could feel free and equal. So th these are the sort of stories. But within an empire. Uh, within an empire. They thought, yeah, because the trouble with, this goes to the whole problem of empires are normally seen as oppressive things, right? Yeah. What if you thought of this as utopian, not in that it's impossible, but it rethinks the way things have been. Uh, what if an empire is simply a multinational place in which people live in uh, equality and freedom, and they realize all of their unique characteristics, but also learn from each other. In a way, that's what the Soviet Union claimed it created. It didn't. It did. Uh, but it claimed. Has there ever been such an empire? No. <laughs> and that's where <laughs> that's where one your title Utopia. That's where one argument about uh, while I have a whole book on possibility, very few of those possibilities ever realized. And I'm, I guess, a, a, a deep optimist. And I think, well, just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it can't. Uh, and it, the moment we think it can't happen, we stop trying. And if we stop trying, then the bad guys win, one might say. And so there is a sort of political message there, too, including for now. Including for now. Yeah, it's, it's relevant. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Russian revolutions that followed disastrous wars. We'll be right okay. back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Steinberg, most of us have heard of the 1917 Russian Revolution, mm -hmm. and you've written a book about this titled Voice of Revolution 1917. But there's much more to this story. For example, as the title of another one of your books, The Russian Revolution 1905 to 1921 suggests, <laughs> 1905, the 1905 revolution was kind of yeah. um, a dress rehearsal, if you will, for the 1917 revolution. And the 1917 revolution, as I've learned, was actually several events, not yeah. a revolution, if you yeah. will. And yeah. you even said it wasn't even a revolution. It, it may have been a coup. So, what so. really interests me is going back to the Pugachev rebellion that you talked about, is that these two revolutions that were within living memory of my grandparents, um, they occurred after disastrous wars. Pugachev rebellion actually occurred after two yeah. wars that Catherine the Great was winning against the Ottomans. Yeah. So um, the reason I'm interested in this period is because of what's happening in Ukraine that we in the West say is going yeah. badly for um, Mr. Putin. So yeah, I'd yeah. love to hear about that period. Yeah. Well, of course, um, just briefly about Putin and that, of course, he's so controlled media, except for young people who know how to use VPN and read <laughs> Facebook. Uh, he's so controlled media that people don't actually know there's a losing war going on. Uh, now, what will happen when they discover it is hard to say. Uh, certainly when, when boys come home dead to their parents, their parents rethink what's going on. But uh, on the whole, people don't know they're living, they're experiencing a losing war. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, losing wars can precipitate catastrophes. That said, uh, though that is, it's absolutely true. The 1905 revolution followed uh, of losing a war with Japan, which was quite insulting to the Russians. Who thought because Russians were European and the Japanese they were racist. Were yeah. They were racist. They said <laughs> these yellow monkeys couldn't possibly beat us. We're Europeans. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, a real shock. Um, World War I was against uh, Western powers, but nonetheless, Russia did bismally bad, but didn't actually lose the war. It just reached a sort of stalemate in which they couldn't seem to advance, but they also weren't uh, losing. But I would say that, you know, the way that wars work as catalysts, not as causes. So that both for 1905 and uh, 1917, what one sees is a deep history in which this sort of revolution, this movement by all sorts of classes and peoples to say, we can't live this way anymore, which is a phrase Russians use all, used to use all the time. I would like to think they're going to use it again. Uh, we can't live like this. This is impossible. Literally, that's it's, a phrase they used. That it's they a use phrase. It. Yeah. In Russian. To live like this any longer is impossible, literally. And so this, this, this declaration had been building from, I would say, for the generation that participated in 1917, uh, it was a um, experience that goes back to at least the 1890s. Whether they were workers, living modern industrial urban conditions, whether they were peasants who were really suffering. Ending serfdom did not make peasants well off. Terrible economic and social conditions. Uh, whether they were educated elites who wanted freedom and democracy and to live in a Western society, uh, all sorts of groups felt that something has to change, but they didn't know how to do it because making a revolution is really very hard. Uh, you need something to make it possible. And in both 1905 and 1917, the precipitation wasn't so much, the, the war helped, it made things worse. There's no doubt about it. But both what happened in both occasions, the same mistake uh, was made, and that is troops were told to shoot at people in the streets, at Russians. So in 1905... Russian troops uh, killing their Russian own troops, country, men and women. Exactly. Uh, and in the same city, it started in, in uh, St. Petersburg, renamed Petrograd in World War I. Uh, in the first case, uh, large numbers of workers, led by a priest interestingly, who happened to be an agent of the secret police, with the whole complicated story there, but he actually, it's unclear, it seems he changed his mind and really sympathized with the people he was supposed to be spying on. He led a big march to the czar with religious banners taken from churches. This is, this is 1905? 1905, yeah. saying, okay. you know, please look at how your people are suffering. And what does the czar do, who doesn't care what the people think, unfortunately, uh, sends troops and say, shoot them, make them go home. Partly because there's a war on. We have no time to have this sort of nonsense. In 1917, he does the exact same thing. It's even worse. And that is, people are out on the streets standing in bread lines. They're hungry. They're marching through the streets. It happens to be International Women's Day, March 8th, and uh, the Western calendar. It's fe late February in Russian calendar. All these people are out on the streets. There's big strikes. And Nicholas says, tell them to go home. We have no time for this in time of war. Tell them to go home. And if they don't go home, shoot them. And he does. This time, though, unlike in 1905, though, 1905 led to a giant general strike all over the country. It's just by the skin of his teeth did Nicholas survive that. Uh, but in 1917, the, the army said, one might say the same thing people were saying. We can't live like this anymore. We can't do this. We can't shoot our own people. And so they just said, forget it. And they handed their guns over to the crowds in the street. And they said, we're not going to do this anymore. And soon everything began to fall apart. When uh, which you keep, the first revolution. This, this phrase, we can't live like this anymore. Yeah. How bad was it? So it depends on, it depends on who you were, right? Yeah. Um, and it depends on what your standards of what would be proper and normal. So for example, 
it, it, when the Soviet Union collapsed, one of the things that everybody had been saying before it collapsed and after is when asked what was their goal, <clears throat> what did they want, they would use a very similar phrase, but it was simply to live a normal life. In Russian, normalna zhizn, a normal life. So what was a normal life? Security, some measure of freedom, maybe a country that's respected in the world. Everybody had slightly different definitions. In the same thing in 1917 or 1905, except there were political parties, because they were allowed to exist, who had agendas of this is what we want. And so how can we, we can't live this anymore be, way anymore. There was a way in which it said, because we don't have, and political parties helped articulate this very clearly, because we are being sent, for example, a soldier, and I spent a lot of time in the archive reading notes, letters from soldiers sent to the, to the government, saying things like, I don't know why I'm fighting this war. What am I doing? Sitting in the trenches, shooting at a bunch of people. I don't care what the Germans are doing. How pervasive was that feeling of disillusionment? Is this a onesie or did you came, come across a lot of, uh, a lot of notes? Them. A lot of them. Okay. A lot of them. I would say one thing you can see is after the czar falls, mm -hmm. almost everybody's delighted, uh, it seems. But then they begin to argue that uh, the whole point of overthrowing the czar was not to make socialism, not to bring Lenin to power, uh, not to unite with the workers around the world, but to make Russia a, a respected but democratic society. And so lots of people were less sure about what happened in October overthrowing a democratic uh, government, in a liberal government in favor of a, of a radical socialist government than they were in February where, yes, the czar, we, we have, we've lost confidence in it. There's a great saying that happens in 1905 uh, when after the troops shoot at these marchers on the street, one of the phrases that people kept hearing, reporters talked about it, it's in memoirs, but a lot of people heard it right on the spot, is they, people said, well, then we don't have a czar anymore because a czar would not do such a thing. A czar is supposed to love his people. And so this phrase, we don't have a czar anymore, became a sort of attitude that persisted for obviously a decade until anybody overthrew the government, until there was another revolution, which may, you know, if you want to think about possibilities now, you may ask about that later, you know, you never know how long it's going to be, even when people say we're disgusted. And people really were. The disillusionment with autocracy, with Nicholas II, was enormous, I but would say. Here's the confusion for me, a non-Russian yeah. living here in the United States. We're talking yeah. about Russians being disgusted with Tsar Nicholas. Yet, yeah. in the 1990s, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong on this, they took out his bones and re-entered oh. him with, with pomp and ceremony as this great czar and everyone was crying and the Russian Orthodox uh, priests were there. Easy to what? explain. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> I, mean, I, should, I, I shouldn't say anything is easy to explain because the favorite thing for historians to say is it's very complicated. Yeah. But let me just say it's easy to explain. Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Which is, which is, because people had become disenchanted with communism. I see. Because after 70 years of a system that promised freedom, that promised prosperity, that promised equality, that promised uh, gender uh, freedom, that promised all these wonderful things, what they had was an increasingly authoritarian state with relatively few freedoms cut off from the world and a declining economy. That probably was the killer for most of them. Uh, and no war, by the way. They, I mean, well, Afghanistan maybe, but that was not quite the same as World War I. They were so disenchanted with communism, what do they have to believe in? Nothing, what could, one could argue. And there were some yeah. who just said, forget every form of government that ever existed forever is garbage. We are never going to win anything. We might as well just get drunk. <laughs> Uh, or leave, the, hey, or leave it, the country. It works for a lot of people. It's worked for me. In yes, the past. <laughs> or, exactly. Or just leave. Or just leave the country. Um, that disenchantment made many look back and say, "Well, the thing that these communists overthrew must have been 
better. And proof that how co bad communists were is they murdered the czar and his family. And so it's hard to say how people would have thought about the nostalgia, the romanticization of Nicholas II and his rule had it not been he died as a martyr. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just exiled him. Exiled somewhere. It was, it was his nice daughters. It was his yeah. servants. You know, it was like really brutal. And that brutality had a factor. And then, of course, therefore, and plus there's the mystery. Where were they? Where were they buried? Who did somebody survive? Everything was set up. The Anastasia story. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Steinberg as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Steinberg, are circumstances in Russia inching closer to deposition of its governing echelon, including Mr. Putin? Or are we far from it? Is this like 1905? We have to get all the way to 1917 or not even there. So, you know, it's like we talked briefly before about the subtitle of my book on Utopia about possibility, right? Yeah. Possibility is always a surprising thing. Um, and I always remember when I think about what might happen, I always remember what Lenin said in the fall of 1916, literally months before the Russian Revolution, the Tsar was overthrown, and about a, in less than a year from when he would be in power. He said, oh, I'm sorry, we're not going to see a revolution in our lifetimes. Impossible. This was a smart wow. man who studied the economy, who studied politics who devoted his whole life to understanding Russia and when revolution would be possible. And he said, I don't think so. It's not going to happen. Because there's so many circumstances you can't predict. And there's a saying, historians like to say, we have a hard enough time as historians predicting the past. Don't ask <laughs> us to predict the future. Which is in a certain sense true, because if you go back, you know, it's like, can you really explain everything that led to a certain event? It, you try, 2020 vision, hindsight, right? Yeah. But in fact, it's hard enough to explain the past. So we don't know, right? Yeah. But we look at all the signs, right? And that, even as a historian, I mean, I will not hide my preference. I'm sure, actually, no, there's a lot of Russians who would hate me to say this, uh, but most of my friends are fine with it, which is, uh, I think it's time for Putin to go. <laughs> Biden was right. It was just not a very politic thing to say. Um, but how is this going to happen? Is First it going to be all, a revolution or a coup? What do you think? He controls the media very, very well. Uh, that's a pro that's a problem. People don't. Many people don't know what's going on. But young people do. They have Telegram channels. You know the social media thing. Telegram they're using. They figured out how to use VPN to to use Facebook. They can tap into Western sources. All the Western media is now being published in Russian, and often has Telegram channels which aren't being blocked. Uh, those especially young people who want to know can know what's going on. And they're angry and they're frustrated. And uh, as many of my friends told me, because we can still email, it seems, uh, they feel a great sense of shame at what's going on in their country. And shame leads to a desire to not feel shame because they feel shame about themselves. How could we live this. In this, under this ruler? How can we tolerate it? It's shameful if we put up with it. So there is this sort of, and there's all sorts of examples of resistance, little forms of resistance. Every single day, I see stories about how people are resisting. Will that lead, lead to anything? There's hundreds of years of people resisting authoritarianism in Russia and in other countries. Will it produce a revolution? It could, depending on the right circumstances. Will it lead the army to say, this is, he is destroying our country. He is bad for us. We need to as happened in August of 1991 against Gorbachev, when the military and the security services said, we're gonna overthrow Gorbachev. They failed. 
Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeltsin went on top of the tank. Or, uh, exactly. Yeltsin yeah. made his reputation at that moment. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was defeated and Gorbachev came to power, back to power for a very short period of time. It was the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, could that happen again? Who knows? Every indication we have is that the security services and the army and the people around him, the elites who are advising him, are extremely loyal. But we've seen highly loyal minions of power turn against their leaders. I mean, there was an attempt to kill Hitler once. They yeah. failed too. Uh, there's always these, so it's, it's completely unpredictable. I think the chances of a revolution uh, aren't great because there's no organized party. Maybe, no can, maybe, maybe we can assess that chance by you answering this question. Okay. Using your, words, uh, your words here. Is yeah. anyone saying the famous phrase that you've been using, we can't live like this anymore? Is anyone saying yeah. that in Russia right now? Absolutely. And they're saying that they're... for economic reasons or just sort of no. cultural, geopolitical, and yeah. other reasons? So not economic. One of the things Putin has accomplished is creating not only stability, but real prosperity in Russia. I mean, I've been going to Russia and the Soviet Union since the 1980s, and I was living there in the 90s, and I know how bad things were, uh, horrifically bad, economically. Oh. And by the er, mid-2000s, things were really beginning to change under Putin. Now, especially in cities like Moscow and Petersburg and elsewhere, you see real prosperity. To be sure, this war and especially the sanctions, because they could sustain the war by themselves without sanctions. It wouldn't hurt the economy at all. Russia seems to be very strong economically, and they have lots of resources. The sanctions are going to damage the economy severely. They're going to suffer. But will that economic suffering lead them to say, we can't live like this any longer? Uh, look what he's done to us. It's just as likely they'll say, see how the West is always ganging up on us. We have to, you, and many people are saying this, in a time of crisis, when the world is against you, you stand behind your leader, no matter what they do. So for some, the economic crisis will strengthen him. So when people are saying we can't live like this anymore, it has more to do, well, as many, at least among the educated people I know, the shame of living in the 21st century under an authoritarian dictator who is willing to commit not only an invasion and an occupation of a foreign territory, but now it's clear atrocities, at least to allow his armies to commit atrocities. This is shameful. And without any provocation. What's that? Without any provocation. There's no, there was no threat military no from- uh, There was, uh, whether he thought there was or not is another question. Yeah. We could give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he thought that uh, NATO was going to expand closer. He thought, that Ukraine was full of Nazis. He could have thought, he, maybe he thought those things. Uh, there's relatively little evidence that he's right. But even if he did, it doesn't, in the minds of even many Russians, justify uh, the crime of basically denying the existence of Ukraine as a state, yeah. uh, as a people, and committing atrocities against them, as if they were, you know, well, what might say, as if they were Sy Syrians or Kurds, where you could put, a, or Afghans, like, you could put up with that. They're European Christians. And for a lot of Russians, this is shameful. Yeah, so like it's, them. yeah. The other thing is it's, we have to remember that the war is at the beginning of things going dark in Russia, uh, crushing um, the free press, uh, closing organizations, civil, uh, civil rights and human rights organizations like Memorial, calling them all foreign agents. Uh, there was a, a real, many NGOs are gone, most NGOs that used to be there are gone. Uh, there was a real clamping down on civil society. And this has been happening uh, for a decade. And people have been warning about it, but uh, it, it only got worse, much worse with the war. People have been saying, we can't live like this as things were closing down already before uh, the war started. So I would say it has to do with political, cultural, intellectual uh, issues, much less than the economy. But will that lead to something happening? We don't know. We're just suffering on people's part. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Russian leadership 
and revolutions, which is a very expansive subject. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I just wanted yeah, to make yeah. one point about it. What would that be? I guess it was sort of where I tried to begin to some degree, and that is that whatever we try to understand Russia, don't think there's only one Russia. It's not ever just the Russia of Putin, though there is a lot of Putinism and a lot of Putinists, one might say, uh, yeah. in Russia. But there's always this other Russia. There was even a political party that called itself Other Russia for a long time till it was crushed, like most political parties uh, in opposition. There's a deep and long tradition of, we could call it dissent, uh, but it really is about belief in uh, democracy, belief in, one might say, universal human values uh, that uh, the right to live at peace, the, the right to not have uh, military conquest, uh, basic human mm -hmm. decency, to live what Russians, what Soviet people always called a normal life. Uh, that movement, that, those, those expectations, people taking action for that, that too is part of Russia, yeah. which is why it's so unpredictable. It isn't just Putin and it isn't just the, the people who are dissenters. It, it's both and a lot of other variations. So to me, that's one of the most important things. Easily forgotten when we, it's very easy to demonize Russia now, but that's wrong. Professor Steinberg, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.